Good morning. Good morning, church. How are y'all? Hey, welcome. I'm glad to be here. I feel inadequate, so let's begin with a word of prayer, okay? Father, just thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we can meet. Lord, thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. Thank you for being who you are in spite of who we are. Father, I feel so inadequate to be here this morning that you would speak through me, that you would speak to us. We're just grateful. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you'll pour yourself out in this place, Lord, that they would not hear a word I say, but would hear every word that you've prepared for their hearts. Father, just be everything today. Make more of yourself and less of me. We love you and we're grateful. Amen. So uh, 2020, am I right? I'm really glad to be in 2021. Everybody else, pretty glad to be in 2021? Uh, 2020, the first year to ever successfully become its own meme. I mean, it's completely like a thing. You can just, 20, yeah, 2020. And everybody knows what you're talking about. It was an entire year of 2020. It was scary. It was terrifying. Some of us uh, lost jobs. I, I know I did. We had to move. That's why we left First City. Uh, a lot of you fell in that boat. It's a scary place. We had riots in the streets, and we had people on this side arguing with people on that side, and the governments across the world took unprecedented control of people's lives, telling them what they can do and not do and where they can go and not go, who can be in business, who can meet. It's a crazy world we live in. And a lot of us, especially if you're on social media or if you pay any attention to the world around you, there's great fear out there. And I think that's normal when we look around because when we look around, we don't always understand the circumstances that surround us and it feels out of control and it's a scary place. But the problem is that's when you look around and what we've got to do is look up. The problem is usually you and I, we approach life as if we're the center of the story and we filter everything through how it impacts us out because we get trapped in this kind of looking around and what we've got to do is we've really got to look up because when you look around there's a lot of reason for fear but when you look up there's a lot of reason for hope and so we've chosen to take 21 days at the beginning of the year and turn our focus back to God to to fast from some of the things that are distracting us from our time with God that are taking our attention and our love and our affection and our desires away from him and turn them back to him. Amen? So that's what we're doing these first 21 days. And in this first week, Wick uh, chose a word for you each day uh, to kind of focus your heart on the Lord. And uh, he chose some of my favorite words, so I was really excited when he told me that he needed me to, to speak on the first week because he chose love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, we're getting into uh, yesterday, I think, was goodness, then it's gentleness and self-control. And, and for those of you who've been in church for a little while, you know that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? And the fruit of the Spirit is immensely important to us as believers. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more today, all right? We're going to turn our focus to the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I want to begin with a, a little history lesson on fruit Now, it's not as boring as you think, because it's really cool, and it comes right out of here. Now, I've got to remind you, at some point, remember, I've told you this before, the Bible is not a linear line through history. It doesn't just start with the beginning of all things and end when God returns and takes us back to heaven and all things are made new. It's not just a line through time where we're in the end just waiting on our departure. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible's more like a circle or a ball. 
It goes around and around and everything connects back to front, front to back. It never ends and it all spiderwebs into the core, which is Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. And God chose fruit to have a huge place in his story. Now, what I mean by that is throughout history, God has used fruit as a metaphor, an analogy, a parable to constantly explain his relationship to us. And he's used fruit in some amazing ways in his word. And in fact, you know, if you think for just a minute, anybody probably in the world that's ever even heard the story of God or the story of Jesus probably knows at the very beginning is a story that takes place in a garden. Everybody tracking? It takes place in a garden, and, and the garden, it's perfect. And we know it's perfect because in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, and he says it's good. Now, he doesn't mean good like you and I mean good, like, well, it's better than something else. He means good like it's perfect. There's no decay. There's no blemish. There's no spot. There's nothing about it that could have been better. That's what the garden's like. And we get through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we see what he creates, and we see he makes man, and he puts man in the garden, and he gives man a helper, which is woman. Man and woman, they're in the garden. We don't know how long they're there, but they're there for a while, and then one day. There's always the then one day, right? Life kind of has seasons, and this was not a good season for Adam and Eve. I don't know what the marital uh, situation was, but they're together, and apparently it didn't end well. Eve... She's talking to the serpent. Now, just a side note, the serpent is the craftiest of all the animals in the garden, and the serpent has legs. I find that terrifying. I'm terrified of snakes. I think it's biblical to be terrified of snakes. I don't like them, but they're apparently the craftiest. So he saw, she's talking to Eve, and we know that, that Lucifer is talking through this, through this serpent, and he convinces Eve that God has told her a falsehood. He's holding something from her, and if she just takes this fruit and eats of it, her life will be better. That's the great lie. Without God, life will be better. You don't need him. You can do it yourself. Now, for anybody who's old enough and mature enough to have tried to do things theirself, you know that's a bad plan. Now, I'm only 42, but I have learned many times, I'm a slow learner, many times that, that that's a bad plan. And here's what the Bible tells us. In Genesis 3, we hear the whole story so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, this is beautiful fruit. Y'all, this is good-looking fruit. It was a tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now we know this is the, this is the event, the cataclysmic event that changes all of human existence and all of human history. From here forward, it will never be the same because forever there's going to be a problem and the problem is now everything is in a state of decay and death. That's the result of sin. And when sin enters the world here in Genesis 3, from this fruit that looked so good, everything went downhill. And the problem is, it was good-looking fruit. She didn't pick the bad stuff. She picked stuff she thought was good and she thought would lead to life, but it didn't. It led to death. You got to be really careful about what kind of fruit you take because there's often a lie attached to it. And what happens is we're actually all producing fruit in our lives. Everything you do is producing fruit. Every action you take, every action you don't take, 
Every thought you have that you either dwell on or you take captive to the Lord. Every website you go to, every person you follow on Instagram, every YouTube video you watch, every news channel you binge, every time you're in the car and your mind wanders, you are producing fruit in your life. And some fruit is good fruit and some fruit is bad fruit. Some fruit is leading you to the Lord and eternal life and some fruit is leading you away. And your fruit is on display for the rest of the world. I'm just here to tell you the rest of the world sees your fruit. Even the fruit you think they don't see, they see. They just don't tell you to your face. Paul tells us good fruit would look like this. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, this last part here, this is actually a part that comes out of the letter to the Galatians, and he says against such things there is no law. Now, if you know the letter to the Galatians, it's not really our focus this morning, but in that letter to the Galatians, he's arguing for why the new way is better than the old way, and that the new way doesn't contradict the old way, it's better. It's like the old way, but better, okay? That's what he means when he says there is no law. He's talking about the law of Moses, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit, so I just want to point that out. But notice also, this is in English right here, the word fruit. You see that? The word fruit. If you look in your Bible, if you look in Galatians 5, I don't care what Bible you read, King James, ESV, ASB, NIV, NLT, any translation is going to have fruit as a singular not a plural, because that's how it appears in the original Greek. That's important. It's important to note because these are the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. So think for a minute like a diamond. There's an age-old question, which facet of the diamond makes it beautiful? Now we know there's no answer, right? It's, it's everything. It's all the facets that catch the light that make the diamond sparkle. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is like that. You can't have love and joy, but no peace and no patience and no goodness. You, you can't do that. It, it's not possible. These aren't the fruits of the Spirit. You don't go and collect each one as you go. It's one fruit with many facets, with many characteristics. You have to have all these things, maybe to varying degrees. We may be working on some of these, sanctification, right? The process of becoming like Jesus. It's a slow process, slower for some of us than others. But it's a process. But you can't have some and not others. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit are these things. These are the things that lead to life. Everything else leads to death. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, we go from Genesis chapter 3. And I told you, the Bible, it's like a big circle. It goes around, and God continually uses this idea of fruit as he talks to his people. And so one of the things that he does is he, he starts in uh, the book of Isaiah. So for those of you who have been in church a little while, you know Isaiah, he was, a, he was a prophet, right? And the prophets in the Old Testament, just a little, a little Bible lesson, the prophets in the Old Testament are broken up into major prophets and minor prophets. Now, it's not about their value or their worth or their veracity, whether they were good at what they did or not. That's not how they broke them up. They just broke them up by, by kind of what they did and their impact on Israel. So when you think about majors and minors, that's kind of how it breaks down. And Isaiah, he's a big one, right? I mean, Isaiah, he's like the man, like, 
even in, the, in Jesus' day, a lot of what they talk about references back to Isaiah. He's a big guy, okay? So in Isaiah, God tells this, this story through the prophet. He's talking to his people, and he tells his prophet Isaiah, he says, tell them this. The story is, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now what God's done is he's painted a picture of somebody who created a vineyard and did everything you need to do to make the vineyard produce a wonderful crop. That's what he's told them. Everything he's describing here, he's told them in their language and in a picture they would see and understand that I did everything to create the environment to produce great fruit. But when I looked for my fruit, all I found were wild grapes. Now, if you don't know about wild grapes, they look like grapes, but they are pretty much unedible. They are pretty much worthless for anything. So I went to look for the fruit, but the fruit that I found was an imposter fruit that looked like good fruit, but wasn't good fruit. In fact, it wasn't good for anything. That story still holds today. God looks down and some of us are producing fruit that looks like good fruit, but it's imposter fruit. It's not helping us and it's not helping anybody else get closer to him. It's not fulfilling the purpose that God created us for. That story from 4,000 years ago still holds true today. But this is what God told the prophet Isaiah to tell his people. He gets done painting the picture and then he says, you judge between me and my vineyard. Go ahead, tell me what I could have done differently. Tell me what more I should have done to produce great fruit. Tell me where I failed. Now it's a rhetorical because God knows he's done everything. But he's giving them the opportunity to defend themselves, which he knows they cannot do. And he continues on. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What went wrong? He goes on, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Remember, it's God's vineyard, right? He's the owner. He can do as he wishes. He built it. He created it. He has authority over it. Still sound familiar, right? And he says, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. I'm going to abandon it. It's produced nothing of value. I'm going to abandon it. Now, you have to remember this is being said to the nation of Israel about 4,000 years ago. They've already been in exodus and bondage once. And God's setting them up to do it again. He says, I'm going to depart because you won't worship me. And if you know the Bible any, you know that as the, the story goes on, as we travel through the Old Testament, it's a cycle. Israel comes back to the Lord. They realize they hit rock bottom. They reach out for the Lord. He pulls them up. And when times are good, they fall away again. And then it happens over and over and over. At least three major times in Israel's history, this is the cycle that they go through. And honestly, it's the cycle that, that a lot of us go through. 
We find the Lord, times are good, we drift away, we start turning our affection and our time and our attention to, to other things. And pretty soon God's in the back seat if he's in the car at all. And he doesn't want to be there. In fact, he wants to be in the driver's seat. He doesn't even want to be your co-pilot. So he tells Israel, that's what I'm going to do. Now you've got to understand this story, okay? I realize this is Old Testament, right? This was to a group of people 4,000 years ago. He didn't say this to you. Doesn't make it any less true, but he didn't say it to you, okay? Now, you move forward. We travel through history. We travel around the circle of the Bible, and we're going to get to the New Testament. Now, the New Testament is just the new covenant that God creates that lets us, most of us anyways, if you're a Gentile, if you weren't born a Jew, it allows you into the family. That's why we love the New Testament so much, because Jesus shows up, awesome, and then Jesus does Jesus things with 12 guys, and the church grows out of that. It becomes this amazing thing, and the gospel goes around the world throughout the rest of time, and it finds us. How cool. Now, here's the thing. Here's why this is important. We're going to get to Matthew. Matthew, Matthew 21. And so anybody who's new uh, to, to the Bible, new to Christianity, new to this God thing, just know that the, the first four books, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, those first four books in the second half of the Bible, they're all about Jesus' life. And they record these events that happen in Jesus' life uh, to help us understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and how we can live a blessed and full life. Okay? That's kind of what we do. Okay? We get to Matthew. Now, in Matthew 21, there's this crazy story. Now, it's crazy because we know Isaiah, right? Okay? And, uh, the people Jesus is talking to in Matthew 21, they know Isaiah. In fact, they know Isaiah way better than you and I know Isaiah. They, they know Isaiah's like favorite color and birthday. They know Isaiah, okay? They're called Pharisees. Everybody tracking, right? And the Pharisees throughout the New Testament, they're constantly sparring with Jesus because the Pharisees represent the old way. And Jesus represents a new way. And the new way is going to turn the old way on its head. And it means people are going to lose some of their status and some of their position. And the way they've been doing things isn't going to be good enough. And they're going to have to start towing the line in their heart, which is way harder than towing the line physically. Make sense? And so they're always sparring with Jesus. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to throw him off. But Jesus is God, so he's going to win. Spoiler alert. And so as we travel through Matthew, we see these conflicts and these clashes. But we get to Matthew 21, and Jesus tells the Pharisees this parable. And the parable, if you look in your Bible, it's called Matthew 21. It's called the, the parable of the vineyard. And it sounds exactly like Isaiah, except Jesus expounds on it. Now remember, God told the prophet Isaiah to tell them this. Jesus, who's God, is telling them this. And he's adding to the story. He's continuing the story. He tells them, there's a person who made a vineyard. It was a beautiful vineyard. It had all the right things for a vineyard to produce a beautiful crop. And the master of the vineyard sent some servants to collect his tithe, his percentage, his pay from the people who were tending the crop. And he says, but you beat them. And some you killed and you threw them out. So the master decided to send his son thinking, surely when they see my son, they will turn around. 
turn around. That word in the Bible is always repent, right? They'll repent, they'll change, they'll turn course, and they'll pay me what I'm due, the honor and the glory that I deserve. But Jesus goes on, and in Jesus' parable in Matthew, he says, but that's not what they did. They killed him, they beat him, and when they saw the son, they decided in their hearts, let us kill him. Because if we kill the heir, it will be ours. There will be no one to inherit, and the master will have to turn it over to us. And then Jesus, this is so cool, Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He then turns it back to the Pharisees, and he says, so, what should the master do about that? And the Pharisees, now they probably know they're trapped, okay? Because they know Isaiah. And they know what Jesus is driving at. And throughout the Old Testament, many, many times, the Lord has referred to the nation of Israel as a vineyard. So they're not dumb. They know that a vineyard is talking about them. And they probably know that the beating and the killing of the servants who are to collect is probably talking about the prophets. So they probably know that, okay? But what are you going to say? I mean, it's an obvious answer. There's like no way not to say, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? The Pharisees, they said to him, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Because God cares about the fruit that is produced. This is what they say. But they don't know that they're essentially signing their own death certificate. They're essentially like, yep, you should pretty much throw us out and fire us and put us to a miserable death and give it to somebody else. Now, the good news for you and I is that somebody else is the Gentiles, it's us, and that's how we get in. So, not all bad. Depending on how you look at it, right? But Jesus tells them this story, and he tells them God cares about the fruit that is produced. And the fruit comes from his people. And his people are producing fruit, but they've got to produce good fruit. Or theirs is not the kingdom. The kingdom will be taken from them and given to others who are producing good fruit. Because good fruit leads to life. And wild grapes, bad fruit impersonates good fruit, but it leads to death. Are you following Jesus' message to these Pharisees? He's telling them, it matters what you do. It matters what you do because it produces fruit. Every thought, every action, everything we spend our time and our affection and our money and our attention on produces something in our life. And if it doesn't produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, then it's not the thing that God wants us to focus on because it's not going to accomplish his kingdom purpose. Amen? All right, so that's where they're at. In Matthew, that's what he tells them. Now, you have to understand all of that. To travel forward into the book of John, to understand the passage that's most important today. All right? All that's the backstory to get to John 15. All right? So if you have a Bible, we're going to John 15, but we're going to take a quick little detour to stop up in John uh, 13. Okay? You just got to understand how it all connects. In John 13, they're in the upper room. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's this amazing, poignant picture. We could spend all day on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
okay? And he, and he sets it up and they have a Passover and it's the last Passover and Jesus is the Passover lamb, the final sacrifice for our sins. There's just so much buried in John 13 and 14. It's incredible. But in John 14, as they're in the upper room, they're having this last meal, uh, the institution of communion, that takes place. I mean, so many crazy things happen in John 13. It's like one of the best chapters in the whole Bible. If you, if you only get one chapter, that's probably the chapter I choose. But in John 14, Jesus drops a bombshell. I mean, a bombshell. Jesus looks around the room, and he tells the 12 people who have been following him, their whole, they've given up everything. They've given up careers. They've given up status. They've given up wealth. They've given up security. They've given up a home. They've given up everything for Jesus. And Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come but I'm leaving. I'm leaving and where I'm going, you cannot come. That's what he tells them. And we know the disciples are bewildered. You can see it in the passage in John 14. Jesus, what do you mean? We've, we've staked everything on you. What do you mean you're leaving? And we don't get to go? And Jesus tells them, if you knew where I was going, you'd be excited for me. But you're not. And I understand. And we see Jesus heartbroken because he wants to help his friends understand. He loves them with all his heart. He wants them to understand, but there's just no way to explain what's about to take place. And so Jesus, with a heavy heart, gets to the end of John 14, and don't miss these words. The last words in John 14 are, arise, let us go. Because those words inform John 15. Now, again, just a little history so you understand your Bible. You know that chapters and verses are a new thing in the Bible, right? The Scripture is old. The Scripture is original. The New Testament dates back to Jesus' time and slightly after, written in uh, the first two or three generations after Jesus, okay? The, the text is old, but the breakdown of chapters and verses comes later. In fact, chapters come first. They come, I think, in about the 1200s, 1300s. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been in seminary. And I think that um, verses, they come around about the 1600s. So before, it just read like a, like a book, just paragraphs. And in fact, if you read the Jewish scrolls, it's really crazy. It doesn't read like paragraphs. Excuse me. There's no, there's no uh, space between anything. The words just run together. It's hard to even tell where a sentence starts and stops. You kind of have to be like a Hebrew expert to figure out where a thought begins and ends. Okay, so don't let that break between two chapters throw you off. They're connected, but we got to figure out how. And this is where I think it's so cool and so important. So his last words in John 14, rise, let us go. Now the Bible doesn't chase Jesus' footsteps, but we do know he goes from the upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, for those of you who know a little bit, you know that uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means wine, or, yeah, wine press, wine press, so, or uh, olive oil, grape, grape press. Gethsemane means grape press, okay? And the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, some of you have been to Israel, I know, the Garden of Gethsemane is just outside the temple, it's just across the Kidron Valley, and there's so much symbolism, we know it's night, and we know that as Jesus travels, somehow he gets from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested and the whole story's going to unfold, right? 
So you know that story. But do you know that to get there, Jesus has to cross the Kidron Valley, which is a dry wadi. A dry wadi means it doesn't flow with water most of the time, except in the heavy rains in a certain season. Everybody tracking, right? But during Passover, Jerusalem is a town of a few thousand, and it swells to a million people at Passover. And in fact, at Passover, there are so many people that the temple remains open all night, the whole week, just to let everybody come in and pray and get through and do sacrifices. They're sacrificing kind of 24-7. And they sacrifice probably as much, scholars think, as a million lambs. And the blood that is spilt from the lamb flows out the wall of the temple into the Kidron Valley. And it's likely that Jesus is walking through the Kidron Valley, stepping over the blood of the lambs as he's going to the the place that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to become the ultimate sacrifice. That's crazy. Now, we don't know the steps Jesus took. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's not integral to the story. doesn't matter one way or the other. But scholars think, and I tend to agree, that his path must have taken him through the temple courts or past the temple courts because the temple is just on the other side of the valley and from anywhere in the town, you really have to travel past the temple to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if that's true, on the temple gates is a giant carving of a grapevine and grapes. Because the nation of Israel is intertwined with the grape and the olive, and the grape and the olive are on everything. They're part of the national symbol. They're carved into the temple gates because the fruit of the vine is used in ceremonies. It's uh, used in social settings. Grapes play a huge role in Israel, and so they've carved them on God's temple gates. Now that is important because if it's true that his footsteps take him past the temple, then it makes perfect sense that we get to John 15 after arise, let us go, and we get these words. This is John. I'm just going to read out of my Bible. I like that better. But, uh, sorry about that. John 15, starting in verse 1, this is Jesus' words. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's Jesus' words. Now, if we don't know Jesus' footsteps, we get from John 14 to John 15, and it's a little bit disjointed. Doesn't make it any less true. He doesn't have to be standing at the temple gates pointing. But if he was standing at the temple gates, pointing at the grapes, saying, I am the vine. It shows us, it showed his disciples that night that he was inaugurating something new. It's not disjointed at all. He's telling them, 
It's no longer about this. It's about this. And one of the points of connection, you've got to go back into the Gospels, and you've got to remember Jesus was, uh, was traveling, and he traveled out of his way once upon a time, and he traveled through a, a place, a land called Samaria. And he encountered a woman in Samaria at a well. Do you remember that story? Often called the woman at the well. It's a very famous story. Uh, you learn about it in, in Bible school if you're a kid in church. The woman at the well. So the story goes that Jesus is traveling, but he's traveling out of his way. Now, we don't know why. Uh, maybe just to meet this woman. Maybe this was a divine encounter planned when the foundation of the earth was laid because God knew every hair on her head and he knew that she needed some hope. And so he encounters her, but he encounters her in a way that only God can encounter her because he's in the middle of the day in a land he's not generally supposed to be in because a good Jew would never travel through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, the Jews and the Samaritans, Samaritans are basically half-breed people. It doesn't probably mean a lot to us. America is full of half-breed, quarter-breed, two-thirds breeds. We all from somewhere and everywhere, and some of us don't even know where we're from, right? But that's not true of the nation of Israel. They're a very pure bloodline. They believe that that's very important to their worship, that's very important to their God, and Samaritans are not pure. Due to some uh, uh, fall of the nation of Israel and some uh, inhabitation by other conquering forces and some intermarriage and some local people, the blood of Samaria is mixed. And so good Jews, they don't travel through Samaria. That's a, a dirty foreign land. Uh, for some of us, it would be like uh, traveling the strip in Las Vegas at midnight. It's just a land we just don't feel comfortable in, okay? That's just kind of how Samaria is. It's a dirty place. We don't want any part of it. Um, that's kind of where they're at. Not only do Jews not travel through, but, but good Jews really don't travel through. And a rabbi who's like the, the goodest of the Jews, he's definitely not going to travel through Samaria. Here we fast forward to the story. Jesus comes upon this well in the land of Samaria. It's the middle of the day. Now, nobody should be at the well in the middle of the day. Now, remember, this is the Middle East, and it's the Middle East before air conditioning. Okay, so we don't work in the heat of the day. That's when we rest. We work in the morning, we work at night, sun up, sun down. But we don't work in the middle of the day because it's hot. Okay? Now, we all know hot. We live here in Pensacola. We know hot, but they, I mean, it gets real hot over there. Okay? And they don't have an ocean to go cool off in. So no one should be at this well. Here Jesus is, and this woman appears. Now, to most of us, we don't catch on real quick because it doesn't seem that odd. The woman's at the well. But the woman should have been at the well at sunrise. Or should come at sunset, but she's not. Because God encounters us where we are, not where we're supposed to be. Do you get it? And Jesus encounters her and he says, give me a drink. Now, she knows, because she addresses him as rabbi. She knows he's Jewish, probably by his accent, probably by the way he's dressed. She knows he's a rabbi, probably by the way he's dressed. Okay, she knows who he is. And she tells him, basically, I'm not welcome at the well because I've made some life decisions and people don't like me. They don't trust me. They don't want any part of me. In fact, when I uh, get near people, they make my life pretty miserable. So that's why I'm here all alone in the middle of the day. And you know, think about it from your perspective. You're a human. Think about it. As soon as she saw that Jewish rabbi in a place he wasn't supposed to be, he had that lofty, perfect Jewish rabbi, her guard went up. 
She put up her walls expecting that she was going to receive more judgment and more condemnation because how much more so from the perfect Jew than from the Samaritan women who had their own flaws, right? And her guard goes up and she kind of kind of steps back a little bit from Jesus and she's kind of like, what do you mean? And Jesus tells her this thing that is so mind-blowing that you've got to understand it to understand where we get in John 15. He tells her no longer is God looking for people to worship him on this mountain or that mountain in Jerusalem. It's no longer about the place, it's about the person. He wants people that are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And her eyes are open. We know she gets it by the way she responds. But that's what Jesus tells her. It's no longer about being here or being there. It's no longer about doing things. It's no longer about accomplishing things. It's no longer about checking blocks and looking a certain way. It's about what's inside. That's where this is headed. That's what he tells her. That's where this is headed. And she says, but I can do that. You can have my heart, Lord. I can't undo all of my mistakes. I can't fix all of my problems. I can't undo all the bad decisions I made. I can give you my heart. That's all you want? It's yours. And she runs off, and I think we'll see her in heaven. Now, Jesus' disciples know this story. We know this story because it shows up in the Gospels. So even though they went into town, they came back at the tail end of the conversation, they know enough to know the story. So when Jesus tells them this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Remain in me, and I in you. They know that something new is about to happen, and that new thing doesn't involve a place, and it doesn't involve perfect actions. It involves a heart and a spirit inclined toward God. They know that. And so Jesus tells them these words, I am the true vine. Now when he says, I am the true vine, he's got to be referring to something, right? Because there's a false vine somewhere. I think he's referring to those temple gates. And I think he's referring to all that was involved in that old way, in the law of Moses and in the temple and in the perfection of mankind and in all the rules we created I think he was referring to it. I even think he was probably pointing at it. And he says, that's not it. That's false fruit. It looks good, but it leads to death. I am the good fruit, and I lead to life. I think that's what Jesus is saying, and I think they get it. And he says, every branch that remains in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Fruit's important, isn't it? This is kind of interesting too. He says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Y'all ever been in a pruning season? It's rough. 2021 might have been a big fat pruning season. It was rough for some of us. But it's rough if we're worried about looking around and not looking up. It's rough if you're the center of the story because you can't control your circumstances. You can control your perspective. You can control how you relate or how you view your circumstances, but you can't control what happens to you through most of life. Most of life is outside your control. And the problem is, if you're the center, then that's a scary place to be. But if we're just chess pieces on a board, 
and we stop looking around at the other pieces and wondering what move comes next. And we start looking up at the chess master and trusting in him to have a plan and a strategy and be moving us in an intentional way to accomplish his end, then it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter. Some of you have been around the world. Some of you follow different people, maybe Voices of the Martyr. Uh, we, we follow a lot of our friends around the world that are in some pretty hostile places. And I think Western Christian culture fears torture, death, and disassociation far more than people who will actually face that in their lifetime. Because they're not focused around, they're focused up. This is a super short match, and the chess master's going to move those pieces around until he accomplishes his goal, and then he's coming back. He's going to clear off the board and start over. And they know that, and we know that, because we have the whole story. Spoiler alert for those of you who don't know your Bible really well, uh, you get to the book of Revelation. It's called the Revelation of John in most non-English Bibles. And John had a vision about what happens in the end, and it makes no sense. That's all I can really tell you. It makes absolutely no sense, and you can listen to 10 different really uh, educated scholars, and you'll probably get 10 different versions of what that really means. I'm here to tell you I have no idea, but I do know that in the end there's a giant banquet feast, and everybody who produces kingdom fruit is invited to share in the fruit at the table. That's all I know. That's all I can tell you definitively about the book of Revelation. But in the end, that's what matters. Now, it's a little bit important. Jesus says, you've got to abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there's a a small chance that you could misunderstand this idea about bearing much fruit. And I don't want you to leave here today with a misconception about what it means to bear fruit, okay? Bearing fruit is not about what you do. That's why Jesus says, remain in me. For any of you who know how to garden, you know that when we garden, we don't actually grow anything. You are delusional and self-important if you think you are growing fruit. You are definitely not. You are at best cultivating fruit, and some of us aren't that good at that. Okay, I'll just leave it there. So we're cultivating fruit, and the way you cultivate fruit is you give it the right ingredients, the right soil, the right fertilizer, enough sun, light, and enough water to grow. And all the fruit has to do is remain in the vine. That's it. It just has to hang in there with all its might and soak up all the good stuff from the vine and it will grow into the fruit that it is supposed to be and it will be beautiful. And that fruit will be consumed by something and it will produce life. That's all it has to do. And that's all you and I have to do to bear much fruit. It's not about our work Our work comes from the gladness of our hearts. The work doesn't get us there. The work is the result of being grateful that we are there. Amen? The price has already been paid. We are already safe in Christ if we choose to put our trust and our hope in him. Anything we do out of that is out of gratitude. It's not to earn anything. So we don't have to bear fruit like the Pharisees thought they had to bear fruit. 
We have to be like the woman at the well and realize that God just wants our heart and our spirit and our truth. That's it. That's what he wants. That's it. Super easy. Just remain in the vine. And that is where good fruit comes from. It comes from being in the vine. It's rooted deep. And that's what these 21 days of fasting and prayer are all about. They're about cutting the things out of our life that are competing for God's attention and God's affection. It's about taking those things and putting them off to the side because they might even be good things, but they're not necessarily great things. And they're not the things that lead to life. They're the things that lead away from real life. There are things that you and I encounter every day that aren't outright bad, but they aren't producing in us good fruit. They aren't producing life. And those are the things that these 21 days we set aside and we turn our hearts and our focus back to God and just simply say, God, I'm I'm sorry. I'm a drifter. I'm a wanderer. I don't know what to tell you. You made me. I'm sorry. I'm broken. Fix me. Take me. Mold me. But the problem is the branches that bear fruit, he prunes. And nobody wants to be pruned. Right? None of us want to be shaped and chiseled and sanded, but that's how God creates in us the person he wants to spend eternity with. Make no mistake, that's what he's doing in your life right now. If you let him, he is pruning you and shaping you and fertilizing you and growing you into the person he wants to spend eternity with. That's what he's doing. There's a plan, there's a method to all the madness. Romans 8.28 promises us That whatever happens in our life, if we look at it from a kingdom perspective, will be for our best and God's glory. That's a promise. Same person who repeated that promise of God's is the person who wrote to us and said, that fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. So look at the fruit of your life. Look at the fruit of your life and assess, is it producing life? Or is it really leading you away? Is it leading you toward God or away from God? That's the litmus test of good fruit. And your fruit is on full display. The whole world is watching to see what the fruit of Christianity looks like. So this week coming up, today we talk about gentleness. Tomorrow, self-control, hope faith, wisdom, truth, obedience. It's a scary one. We'll talk about that next week, all right? Pray with me.